Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. When Russia's war on Ukraine started at 5 a.m. Moscow time on Thursday, February 24th, the FT's editor-in-chief, Rula Halov, was on vacation. For months, Putin had been amassing troops along Ukraine's border, though he was also saying that they weren't intended for Ukraine. And as the head of the Financial Times, Rula and her team were ready. All of them. The editors, the journalists on the ground, they had been thinking about how to plan for a war that wasn't supposed to start, but could arrive at any moment. I remember very clearly it was on Christmas Eve that we had our first meeting on on Ukraine, literally Christmas Eve. Uh, mm-hmm. I called various uh, editors. We had a hangout and we started planning for what may come. And I had been at the Munich Security Conference just a few days before the war and I'd had a lot of briefings about how Uh, intelligence agencies expected uh, the war to unfold. And so on Wednesday, I was I was mentally uh, prepared and I was actually away on on a holiday. So I watched CNN uh, for hours and and hours and feeling very frustrated that I'm not actually in in London and in the newsroom at that time. But we weren't really by that time, we weren't actually surprised. We were expecting it. Hey there, I'm Mark Filipino. I'm filling in for Lila today. Normally, I host the daily news podcast at the FT. It's called the FT News Briefing. If you haven't already, you should check it out. On the news briefing and just about everywhere else at the FT, Ukraine has dominated our coverage over the past few weeks. And Rula plays a primary role in shaping that coverage. She's led the FT since January 2020. She started about two months before the pandemic hit the Western world. So she's basically never had a slow news day as editor. And now, she says, we're covering the most important news event of our lives. Because we have lived in a world where we assumed that this type of war in the heart of Europe would not take place. Uh, ever again. We assumed that the Cold War was over, and it was over for several decades. But this this war takes us back to a time that we just thought we would never uh, return. This story is affecting every single part of the FT, and that's because it will reverberate around the globe in so many ways. It is also about how Europe weans itself off Russian energy. It is about the future of the energy order. It is about inflation and stagflation and possibly recession. There are a lot of people who think that the cost of this war is going to be a recession of, of many years. This weekend, we go behind the scenes and talk to Rula about how the FT has been covering the war in Ukraine and how our opinion writers have handled the big questions this war has brought. 
Then we talked to Russian poet and novelist Maria Stepanova about the view from Moscow. Russian intellectuals are leaving the country in droves as a way to protest the war. Maria tells us how painful it's been as a Russian to watch this war and be able to do nothing to stop it. This is FT Weekend. I'm Mark Filipino. Every day at the FT, there's this meeting that happens called the Leader Conference. That's where FT columnists discuss the position they'll take in that day's editorials, or leaders. A dozen or so of the publication's opinion writers get together for an hour to agree on the two pieces that'll run that day and think through some going forward. It's a way of working out the FT's line, but it's also a good place to debate your colleagues. Considering how divided we are, I'm just trying to imagine what the, what the leader would look like. I mean, would it... I, I think we're, Robert, not, we're not that divided. To give you a sense of what these have been like in the wake of the war in Ukraine, we went to a few leader conferences. But I want to walk you through this one from March 22nd, because you can really hear what's at stake. Robert, you also thought that we should discuss at some point what do we consider to be the red lines. That's Rula talking to UK chief political commentator Robert Shrimsley, who is also a UK editor at large. The red lines in question are lines that NATO could draw for Russia. It's a question about whether using chemical weapons or bombing Kyiv could or should be considered a trigger for NATO to use force in Ukraine. Whether there are any circumstances in which NATO should go to war, basically. But the bigger question here is when or if the whole of the FT would endorse a red line for NATO? Or should the editors say that it doesn't endorse force no matter what? What do you all think? To be clear, you're talking about NATO military intervention, no, a no-fly? What, I mean, what do you mean by that? I NATO? don't necessarily mean a no-fly. I mean, it, I, it, I, don't, I don't know is the answer to your question, what specifically I mean. But it, I think there has to come a point when NATO is prepared to say, we will not put up with this. But with the full with the full knowledge that the risk here is that he uses a tactical nuclear weapon. Well, that's the, that's the risk that has to factor in. But I do think you can't simply ignore endless any forms of atrocities, especially if you believe that, that it would make a difference to Putin's actions if he thinks the threat is real. Stefan Wagstall, our wealth and personal finance editor, comes in here. He is saying the board should consider not just NATO's red line, but also the specific response it's threatening. It, it could be that a, a no-fly zone, but I think we should call it something else because no-fly in itself is a red flag over Western Ukraine uh, on the argument that the refugees displace people because they need a safe area, and many of them are concentrated around the now. Now, in case you're wondering, our opinion writers didn't resolve any of these questions in this meeting. The discussions are ongoing. And they haven't written the piece endorsing red lines for NATO. But I wanted to talk to Rula about what happens when opinion writers disagree on big issues and what leading the coverage of the war beyond the opinion page has been like for her. Hey, Rula, thanks so much for joining. So can you tell us what was going on in that clip we just heard? As you said, Mark, every day um, I hold a, what is called the leader conference. 
And during uh, the past few weeks, we've had a lot of discussions, as you can imagine, about Ukraine and about the position that the editorial board uh, will take. In this particular uh, discussion, the question was, is there a point at which NATO should intervene in Ukraine? Because as we know, NATO will defend NATO territory, but will not actually intervene militarily in Ukraine. An intervention in Ukraine may very well provoke um, Vladimir Putin to do something unspeakable, for example, possibly, uh, hopefully not, but possibly uh, using a tactical uh, nuclear weapon. And so this was not the first time that we discuss whether there is a a red line after which we would support a military intervention, and it won't be um, the last time. So Rula, what's your thinking on all this? I personally have been very reluctant uh, to think of a of a red line because of the potential consequences. On the other hand, if you know Putin, for example, were to use chemical uh, weapons, if hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians were to be killed, if he were to bomb uh, Kiev for days and days, well. Could we stand by? Could we, as the FT, say that the West should still stand by and not intervene in Ukraine to bring an end to these atrocities? I think this is a very difficult question. I hope that we don't have to face it, but I fear that we may have to face it. You know, it, it occurs to me that if this is the most important conflict of our time, it seems like a pretty important decision. Is that how you're thinking about it? You know, what what are you considering here? I'm considering the position of the Financial Times as a newspaper. And I listen to the views of the editorial board, and there are often conflicting views. At the end of the day, it is it is my call. And so, of course, it's very important for me to uh, have as much discussion uh, as possible. So you, you hinted at this a little bit, but how is crisis coverage different than the everyday? And how is the coverage of this particular war different, if at all? It's different for for several reasons, one of which is that it's constant. It's absolutely constant. Uh, the, the news changes uh, sometimes every minute, but it's also different because you have people, you have correspondents in the field. So there are a different set of concerns that come into it. It's not just somebody, you know, some of your reporters are not uh, sitting in, in an office or interviewing someone in, in a building. They are in, in zones uh, of conflict. Um, and so it the way that you handle uh, a story like this uh, is is very different from from your day to day. You have to care about the the safety of correspondents. You have to make sure that they're not in uh, in a in a danger zone, but yet that they are able to report on the story. In a conflict, in a war, the story itself is is also different. It has many different angles. Uh, you've got the 
reporting on the actual conflict, but you have also the reporting on the humanitarian situation, um, on deaths and, and destruction. And then you have the repercussions, the politics, trying to tell your readers the background and trying to get readers to to understand why uh, this war is taking place. And also one of the big, big questions always is, how does this end? So my last question, Rula, is, you know, what's the hardest decision that you've had to make since this war began? I can think of two kinds of challenges. Um, One has to do with deployments and where your people are and making sure that they are always safe and that if they're, especially if they're, they're moving around. And there, there were moments when I wanted to get two of our journalists out of Kiev, for example. And that was, that was pretty uh, tricky. Um, But I think another challenge is always on, stories such as these is making sure that you strike the right tone. And sometimes tone it has to do with which stories you're running, the number of stories you're running, what is the overall message that, uh, that the FT is giving to readers. So I would say those are two of the many challenges. Rula, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Mark. A couple of weeks ago, FT Weekend published an essay by the Russian writer Maria Stepanova. Maria is one of Russia's best-known authors. In 2021, her book In Memory of Memory was shortlisted for the UK's prestigious Booker Prize. Besides English, it's been translated into a bunch of languages. German, Spanish, Italian, you name it. The piece that ran in the FT is called The War of Putin's Imagination, and in it, Maria describes feeling like a character in a book whose writer doesn't care about her. She has a sense of what's right and wrong, but the writer keeps going against it, against what most people would say is right and wrong. I would say that what is going on, we are being dragged into some personal fiction that is taking over our time and people's lives just because some person has suddenly decided to change the world according according to his taste. The writer, of course, is Russia's president, Vladimir Putin. And his subject is the war in Ukraine, which has so far displaced some 10 million people, roughly a quarter of the country's population. But in real life, Maria is the writer, one with a deep sense of ethics and a desire to affect the life of her country. And she joined us to talk about what it's been like for Russians who don't support the war. Well, there is this general feeling of desolation, and uh, it is taking different turns. There is a number of approaches. Uh, A large amount of my close circle of people I know, people I'm close with, are moving away from Russia. And uh, when I am speaking of people leaving, it is not only those who are really endangered, the journalists, the activists, those who are who were involved in the protest movement, um, but also poets, teachers, housewives. They are leaving the country 
with no clear vision of uh, their future. People are getting away not because they are being scared. They are doing it out of, well, sure, a feeling of disgust. People want to have nothing to do with the country that does these things. In addition to being a poet and a novelist, Maria is the editor of Colta, an arts and culture website that was outspoken about issues like LGBTQ rights, corruption, and other political topics. Well, she was its editor. Colta shut down its operations in early March. It couldn't keep going under Russia's new censorship law. Russia banned the words war or invasion in reference to Ukraine. It is considered to be war fakes. And for spreading these war fakes, you might be subject to, well, to a prison sentence from 3 to 15 years. So we decided to stop until the war ends. And actually, it was, uh, it was funny in a way because we decided to close down on, for instance, Friday. And on Monday, we were shut down by the state. So it seems there was no actual choice. The new law has shuttered all of Russia's remaining independent news media. Take TV Rain, the last independent TV station in the country. It shut down. Or Novaya Gazeta. It shut down, and its editor won the Nobel Peace Prize last year. Maria is now in New York, teaching a short course at Columbia University. It's a plan she's had since before the pandemic, but it comes at an opportune time. It's a welcome excuse to distance herself from this war, but this feeling of helplessness she's describing... It's followed her across the ocean. Maria, how are you doing? What have the last few weeks been like for you? Uh, That's a hard question uh, because actually, well, it doesn't feel right uh, to be starting with myself because the whole matter is not uh, not about me and uh, I'd say not about my compatriots because what is happening the invasion, uh, the atrocities, everything is happening in Ukraine. And we are, well, those who are trying to oppose Putin, who are at the other side, we are forced to being mere witnesses. I am unable to do much. That doesn't mean I'm not trying to do something. But, well, I feel envious for my friends in Berlin or in Poland, who are able to do real work, meeting people, helping them to adjust. That's uh, what seems uh, a most essential thing nowadays. Now, more than ever, Russia is a black box. Over the past decade, there's been a crackdown on free speech and dissent. And it's become increasingly hard to know what Russians think. In his last presidential run, Putin got 77% of Russia's vote. But who knows what percentage of that was genuine support. It's the same with the war in Ukraine. Official polls say roughly 60% support it. But Maria guesses that number is smaller and more nuanced. She thinks a third support it, a third are indifferent, and a third are resistors, like Maria and her friends. And it's clear that for them... This is deeply personal. 
I think that the majority of Russian intellectuals, maybe 90%, are unified. We are horrified, we are disgusted, we feel a deep responsibility for what have happened because, well, we didn't stay silent, we were crying out for years. But uh, it seems that it wasn't enough. Thousands of Maria's peers are leaving Russia. They're going wherever they can. For those who don't have visas to Europe, former Soviet states are popular. Georgia, Azerbaijan, Armenia. Leaving is a way to express personal outrage. But if you think about it in terms of a history, leaving Moscow for someplace like Yerevan or Tbilisi, it's a way of escaping the empire's center for the periphery. You've probably heard that the bonds between Russians and Ukrainians also date back centuries to the Russian Empire. This is really simplifying things, but a few centuries ago, Ukraine basically made an alliance with Russia to get protection from Poland and Lithuania. What that means in practice is that after centuries of connection, many Russians have personal ties to Ukraine. Some have relatives there. Others have gotten to know Ukraine as visitors. So you mentioned that you know people in Ukraine right now. Yeah. Uh, I understand that your grandfather was from Ukraine. Do you still have family over there? Uh, no, and um, that's one more layer that adds to the whole picture for me because the places I am from, my family was from Kherson and Odessa and uh, Kachovka, the south of Ukraine, are precisely the places where everything is happening right now. And I have friends there who are writing on Facebook every day about uh, about what is going on. And uh, when I come to think about the past of this beautiful land, and it is beautiful, it is unlike anything else, um, I feel desperate because somehow by some strange coincidence, or you may call it well, destiny as well, these places have a tragic uh, history uh, during the World War II. And uh, before that, during the first years of the revolution, a history of being, uh, well, occupied, reoccupied. And uh, every single time, there was, well, a huge amount of bloodshed. Before the invasion, it was impossible for Maria to imagine these beautiful cities that felt so familiar could be caught up in war. She has this story. Shortly before the war started in February, she spoke to a friend in Germany who wanted to visit her mother in Ukraine. Um, this friend uh, tells me that her mother in Kharkiv she has COVID, and uh, her state is not so good. So she bought the plane tickets, and uh, she wants to go to Kharkiv the day after the next. But her daughter, who is based in Moscow, she is adamant, saying that she shouldn't do it, because there is war to happen right now, and what are you thinking of? So the woman's daughter says that she shouldn't go. She'll get stuck. And Maria is called in as arbiter. Should her friend go or not? And uh, 
I hope that was the last time when I made any kind of political prediction, because I told her in my best writerly voice that, well, dear, you, you shouldn't worry, because, well, let's think it over like uh, reasonable people. Putin is a gambler. He is this uh, sneak who is thinking mostly about his income. So he would be gambling, uh, he would be threatening, and then he'll uh, get his share and uh, stop the whole matter. Or in the worst case scenario, okay, they could invade Donbass, but uh, where is Donbass region and where is Kharkiv? Different places, different stories. So don't you worry, you, you, you can just relax. And uh, that's what she did. Maria is speaking here of the breakaway regions of eastern Ukraine known as Donbass. And Putin, of course, did invade. It's something Maria found out at 5 in the morning from her social media feed. But the weight of this story, her own failure to comprehend the lengths to which Putin would go into Ukraine, has shaken Maria. She doesn't know what happens next. She's stopped trying to predict the future. She's stopped giving advice. Well, people are leaving, people are staying, and uh, I don't uh, actually know which strategy is working in terms of ethics, in terms of opportunities, of resisting, opposing, doing something. Um, It is still an open question. This feeling of being disoriented goes beyond Maria. Those who didn't think that a war was coming now can't imagine what happens next. The way she describes it, nothing is certain. Even language, which, as a writer, she thrives on. At the end of the article, you said it was becoming hard to write. Uh, I'm still struggling with it. Not, not, not even struggling. I am feeling, well, mute. And uh, I don't know if or how or when it will pass. This piece you've mentioned is the only piece of writing I've done for during these 33 days of war. And uh, you are suddenly finding how well militarized the language is, how filled it is with lots of hidden metaphors that date back not to the Soviet times, but further, earlier. I think it is, well, an empire thing, something very colonial, and a long history of oppression and colonization that is leaving its traces on the fabric of the language. But uh, now, when all the wounds are getting open, it is physically painful, just to be speaking. It must be it must be exhausting to kind of think about things that you just normally say naturally and potentially second guess them frequently. It is exhausting, but in a way it is a work to be done and a necessary work because one of the few things a person is able to do in current times is to stay conscious, conscious of what you are doing, what you are writing, what you are saying, 
trying to to find uh, their mistakes. Maria, I know that by no means Russia is a monolith, but what do you think Russia will look like? You know, what what will it look like if this war ends? When when this war ends? It should end. It should end. Uh, there is no other choice. Uh, you cannot have a full-blown war, a war like this, with this amount of victims uh, right in the heart of Europe. So it should it should end. But I, you know, I told you I, I'm done with predictions, and I think that the main thing is to be done with the war. It is totally understandable. It is well, basic human nature. It is unbearable not looking away. And uh, so one feels allowed to indulge oneself with, well, talking over the status of Russian culture, for instance, or the possible scenarios of how it all could end if it ends. And uh, it is all, well, interesting subjects, but for the post-war time, I suppose. Maria, thank you so much for your time. That's the show this week. Thank you for listening to FT Weekend, the podcast from the Financial Times. Please keep in touch. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the show, your questions, your compliments, your ideas. You can email us at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com or on Twitter at ftweekendpod. You can find links to everything we've mentioned on this episode in the show notes. I'm reading Maria's In Memory of Memory. The FT is making key Ukraine coverage free to read to keep you informed. You can find that link in the show notes, as well as a link to the best offers available on a subscription to the FT if you want to support our journalism and get access to all of our reporting. Those offers are at ft.com slash weekendpodcast. Make sure to use that link. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's our team. Katia Kumkova is our senior producer. Zoe Sullivan is our newest producer. And Lulu Smith is our assistant producer. Breen Turner is our sound engineer with original music by Metaphor Music. The show this week was mixed by Garrett Tiedemann. Topher Forges is our executive producer. And special thanks to Cheryl Brumley and Renee Kaplan. Finally, a special shout out this week to Madeline Speed for helping us with the leader conferences. Thank you. Take care. And Lila will be back next week. <laughs>